This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to teaching you to get close to the biblical Christ. On our previous encounter, we discussed the first half of Revelation chapter 8, which presented the incredible power of prayer. We were challenged to get serious about prayer in our personal lives and our church life. Now we want to begin to examine the seven trumpet blasts that compose the contents of the seventh seal. What are we to make of a third of the earth being burned up? of a blazing great star poisoning a third of the earth's water, and a talking eagle screaming judgment on the world. Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 8, and let's join our study leader Dave Wurtson for the conclusion of When Bad Things Happen to Bad People. It says in verse 6, though, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. At the trumpeter, I can just see them getting in their line so they can look at each other. And the first angel sounds his shofar, his trumpet. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet. And a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters turned to bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned to darkness. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle flying in midair. He called with a loud voice, Woe, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts that are about to be sounded by the other three angels. Revelation 8 presents us the first four trumpet blasts. Just like when we opened the seals, we had the four horsemen. See how the book fits together. Now, the debate in this passage is, is this symbolic or is it literal? And those that say that it's symbolic will say, well, man, you know, eagles flying over and talking and, you know, that's kind of a weird thing. And this idea of a big wormwood, big star coming out. How could you have a third of the sun do this and a third of the sun do that? Then the next step is it's no big deal. That's the way it comes across as I've been pastoring for many years or we can't understand it. So what in the world does it mean? On the other hand, we have people that will say, no, it's all literal. And what it means is that we do have an eagle that flies and talks. And we do have like a, that we have a third of the sun being blocked out and a third of the moon being blocked out. And we have this intense literalism. Remember what I shared with you at the beginning of the book. John is picturing, is is communicating to us in word pictures. And they're very powerful word pictures, and you need to hear them. And what you need to understand is just because I use beautiful, powerful imagery to tell you something doesn't mean that it's not true. In other words, if I say Jesus is the good shepherd, I'm not saying that Jesus in heaven is taking care of literal sheep and cleaning up their poop and feeding them their stuff and giving them water. It's not what it means. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What it means is that Jesus is a kind, loving leader that will feed us and take care of us and meet our needs. You all understand that. 
So to say that it's symbolic and figurative doesn't mean that there's, there's not an ultimate, incredible reality that's behind it. And the, the Church of Jesus Christ debates. We even get in a fight. We even create schools, the, the symbolists and the literalists. We get in big debates over those things. What concerns me about both schools is that both schools can be arguing against one another and they miss the whole point. You see, let's think about what's happening in this text. Where has this language been used in the past? When it talks here, first of all, about the first angel sounded in his trumpet, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled upon the water, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees, and a third of the green grass, and all the green grass was burned up. Has that ever happened in the past? Have there ever been a plague of hail that brought down that kind of intense destruction? Yeah. It happened in the plagues of Egypt. Exodus chapter 9. Moses. God sent Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the great antichrist of the Old Testament. And Pharaoh said, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm the most powerful force in the world. And I'm the one that controls everything. And Yahweh said, oh no, you're not. Let my people go, Moses said. Pharaoh said, no. You've all learned that in Sunday school, right? So what did God begin to do? One of the plagues, one of the plagues, the ninth plague, was a plague of hail. That's not a stretch of the imagination, is it? In history, I want you to know, if you're an Egyptian and you went outside during the plague of hail, you'd get your head bonked. And it produced devastating destruction. Now, poetic language is used to describe the power of that storm because God is very powerful with literature and he loves to use powerful symbols. But I want you to know that when there was a real plague that devastated the land of Egypt and the children of Israel were protected from that. Remember, we've learned in the book that as God begins to pour out his natural destruction against the world, he seals his people and protects them. So his people are experiencing the agony of the, of the pressure from Antichrist, but as their king begins to counterattack, he's not like our military that tends to haphazardly, you know, for the most part we blow up the right people, but every once in a while we make a mistake. In the book of Revelation, our ultimate king of kings and the Lord of armies, he doesn't blow up the wrong people. And that's what Revelation is presenting. So the first trumpet sounds, I believe that it's described in powerful images of like a tremendous, like hail and like fire and blood. And it's hurled down upon the earth. And many of you want to literalize that? Mary and I were just out in Montana. In the midst, there was a big thunderstorm that came through as we were moving down Route 90. And when the, when the thunderstorm was passed, Mary and I looked and I said, man, it looks like a big cloud coming out. And Mary said, oh, no, that's not a cloud, that's a fire. When we got there, we looked to the left of the highway and tremendous flames were just shooting up through the pine trees and billowing smoke. As we looked at that, what used to be a stand of beautiful pine trees, it was now just charred. And everything in the wake of that flame was burned up. Was it real? Yes. When we arrived at the camp, the people that had invited us to come to that camp, they had built a home right in the middle of that forest. They had ten minutes to get out of the house. And that night we prayed for them because their house was nothing, was completely gone. Because there was hail, there was lightning, there was fire. And there was destruction. There would have been their blood if they hadn't gotten out. 
What the scripture is saying is that as we move into the second part of the tribulation period, that the forces of nature under the command of God, not by natural selection, not by probabilities, but by a good king's hand, is going to begin to attack the Antichrist. And Antichrist is going to say human technology, human science can answer everything. And God's going to say, oh no, you chose to arm wrestle with the wrong king. Because I'm the one that created nature. I'm the one that created the storehouses of the thunderstorms. And now I'm going to show you what the power and might of Almighty God can do. In the next plague, when it talks about this huge mountain, all the blades were thrown into the sea, we can think of it's possible it's going to be a huge meteorite that comes into the sea, but it's possible that God is describing like this powerful video, and he pictures this incredible image, and what it's saying is that there's going to be a great destruction against the waters of the ocean. And something goes really haywire in the water of the ocean, just like in the plague in Egypt. Remember when the Nile turned to blood? And all the fish died. What we have at the end of time is now we've got not just in an Egyptian scale, but in a world scale. The Lord God of heaven, the Lord that called the waters and set up their boundaries is now going to restrain his, his giving, creating function. And there's going to be tremendous destruction. And so that a third of the life in the sea die. And a third of the oceans are destroyed. And those ships are going to experience, that are out in the ocean, are going to experience violent storms as a third of them die. And we have the third angel sounding. It sounds like a blazing torch from the sky. Maybe it will be a meteor. Who knows? And yet it's a very weird meteor because it destroys the fresh water supply. What the scripture is saying is that during the tribulation period, the fresh water supply is going to be attacked. It uses imagery to describe how that's going to be done. And there is beautiful symbolism with this incredible dramatic picture of, of an invasion from outer space, from the hand of God, from the supernatural realm, not really from outer space, from, from God's space that comes and attacks the fresh water supply. I believe these things are just as real as what happened in Egypt because that's my biblical precedence. It says here, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and the third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars. And, and what it's saying is that in the scripture, darkness is often part of the judgment of God. When Jesus was crucified, it says that the earth became dark. Remember that? It was the middle of the day. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and all of the area of Jerusalem became dark. God moves, and when there's judgment, he often superintends it like a great dramatist, and it becomes dark in nature to fit exactly the darkness of what's going on. Many times in his holy word, there's been instances where we've had darkness that come upon the world. To show you how in my own life, Mary and I have experienced that, I think God give us a little foretaste of this now. Because I am a committed supernaturalist. I am totally anti-a naturalist. When I'm using naturalist, not of a nice guy that worked in the forest to help bears and stuff like that. I'm a committed supernaturalist and I'm not a naturalist. I don't believe that we live in a closed system. Mary and I had a precious friend, Rick and Judy Taylor. Their oldest boy, Kyle, his little brothers were playing in a pond behind their house. And suddenly one of his little brothers fell into the pond and went underneath the water. And his oldest brother dove in after him and tried to save him. When their mom came out, when Judy came out, their little, the littlest one toddled up yelling, Mommy, 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 my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. Judy went tearing down to the pond, and when she looked at the pond, there was nothing, just a big pond. And suddenly little Eric bobbed to the surface, and Judy dove in, and she had to make the choice because she, she had to save Eric. 
and she resuscitated little Eric, and she knew the whole time she was resuscitating little Eric that the time she was using to resuscitate Eric, her oldest son would be gone. And so we went to the funeral over here at Pine Cove, Texas, many years ago. And man, my heart broke during that funeral because they were exactly the same age as Jonathan and Joel, our little boys at that time. And our heart broke. In fact, it was dark. It was stormy. We were in a big auditorium, and everybody was weeping and, and trying to bring comfort to the Taylor family. Prof Hendricks spoke and shared from his heart. You know, as we moved right towards the climax of that funeral ceremony, in the midst of all those tears, this dark, cloudy, rainy day, suddenly in the auditorium, there was a tremendous shot, this bright light of the sun, a marvelous ray of sun that came and bathed the whole auditorium in brilliant sunlight as God opened up those clouds and the sun broke through. You say, oh, it just happenstance. I don't think so. Because God controls the darkness and God controls the light. And I think our precious daddy in heaven said, Rick and Judy, my heart is breaking over the loss of your precious oldest boy. But I want you to know that I'm hugging him in my arms right now And I want you to know that the brilliant sun that I control, it's not going to be darkness. You're going to have great darkness of grief. But ultimately, the clouds are going to break and tremendous shafts of light are going to impinge upon your whole existence. And one day, I'm going to wipe away all the darkness of your loss of your son as you live forever and ever with precious Kyle. And I'm going to show you just a little foretaste by giving you a brilliant ray of sunlight at the climactic time of the funeral so that you can be reminded that your King of kings and Lord of lords is even in control of the forces of nature. See, that's for us as his children. We can rejoice that our God is in control. I think all of history flows like that. We wouldn't be here as free people, as people that are rejoicing and being able to vote, if the English channel, if the English channel would have been rough and would have been like it often is, churned with gigantic waves. When Dunkirk took place, as the English army, at the beginning of World War II, Hitler had pushed the English army right to northern France and just just walled them up against the sea. And the Nazi panzer movement was coming down upon the English boys. And at that particular time, at the beginning of World War II, the English couldn't withstand them. They were going to go. And Winston Churchill was called, and they called for all the British men, every landing craft, every woman, every man that could sail a boat. They called for all of England that was on that side of England to sail their boats to the coast of France. Little boats, big boats, in-between boats, thousands upon thousands of normal crafts just headed for France. And they got their English boys in those boats, and they took them back. And the English Channel was calm. The Lord brought a fog upon it and shielded them so that the Nazis couldn't come and follow. And the whole English army was evacuated from northern France. And with that became the groundwork for the great British resistance that we eventually joined that brought the defeat of Hitler. Have you ever stopped to think, suppose it would have been rough that day. Suppose the waves would have been too high so that little, little craft couldn't get over there. You think God isn't in control? There's one story after another. When I talk to Israeli troops about the war that they've had, they'll tell me incredible stories about tremendous, powerful, physical phenomena that they have seen evidence that their Yahweh has fought for them. 
So what I want you to do, I want you to realize that your precious Savior in heaven is someone that you need to go all the way with. As we look at these six trumpet judgments, what we're learning is that our King of Kings is in control of nature. Our King of Kings. What happened when bad things happened to bad people? Have you noticed something? Did God send a hailstorm that wiped out all of his enemies in this chapter? Did God send a plague against the, the fresh water that killed everybody? Had we looked at these four plagues in this book, did God totally destroy everybody? What have you noticed as I've read through the text that I've left out until now? He only destroyed what? A third of the people. Why do you think God did that? The book of Revelation chapter 11 says this. He said, and yet they would not repent of their evil deeds. You know why God is doing that? I want you to know that God on your own life, and I want to make it really personal to you. I want every one of you to know, if you start wandering away from God, God will not destroy you just like that. Hardly ever happen. You can be a little bit immoral. You can be a little bit deceptive. You can be a little bit materialistic. You can wander away from him. Your kids can do it. Young people can do it. And one of, the most, one of the most devastating effects, one of the most lethal mistakes you can make is nothing happened. Everything is fine. Because you know what? Your loving Father in heaven is so kind and so gracious, even with bad people. Some of you are sitting there, David, David saying, your thesis is not true. Because I know a lot of bad people that would be bad according to this book. In fact, the Bible says that all of us are bad according to this book. But I know some people that rankly disobey God and nothing happens. And so you use that to justify your sin. What the book of Revelation is teaching us, even during the tribulation period, with people that have chosen to take in the seal of Antichrist, with people that have chosen to even butcher believers, the book of Revelation is saying that God only hits a third. You know why he does that? Because he wants to give a time for people to repent. He wants to give a time for people to turn around. He wants to give a time for people to be able to come to him. In the tribulation period, he slowly tightens down the punishment. He slowly brings it on because he wants people to turn with him. The book of Ezekiel says this. Do you think that the Lord of the earth delights or takes pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, he doesn't. My message to you today is, listen, you live in a culture that says you can do whatever you want to sexually. If you're a homosexual, that's a good thing. That you kids are going to be taught in school. If you're really going to be progressive, and I'm going to use this because I really nail it home. You're going to be really progressive, really be kind. Then you're going to, all different lifestyles are all the same. Some people go to bed with guys. Some people go to bed with girls. Some people go with guys and girls. Some do it just with one partner for life. Some people do it with multiple partners. It doesn't make a blood of difference. That's a lie from the pit of hell. He said, how do you know that? Because someone very close to me Someone very close to me fell in love. He stayed in my cabin when he was falling in love, and we prayed together, and we talked together. And we rejoiced. I even went as a third party because they were in a Christian organization, so you had to have a third party. So I went as a young kid, a lot younger than them. I, I kind of went to chaperone them, and I would you know, get lost when I needed to get lost and stuff like that. They ended up getting married. They ended up going to the mission field. They ended up having two beautiful kids and rejoicing in those little kids. My friend was a really gifted pianist. My friend was gifted in radio, used of the Lord. And after two turns in the mission field, 
He came home and he told his wife, I'm gay. It's my existence. It's my life. And in order to live, that's the choice I need to make. A dear Christian counselor friend of mine tried to talk to my friend, tried to reach out to him, tried to love him. There came a time where my friend that was homosexual looked at that Christian counselor and said, it's got to be my homosexuality. And he walked out of that counselor's office. He walked out of his marriage. He walked away from his kids. He walked away from his family. Does it make any difference? Yes. My friend just died of AIDS. He told the lover he was living with at the time to not even tell his family. And so this family didn't even get the call until he was already in a coma. His son, that was just beginning to get a relationship with him, just beginning to learn about his dad, trying to reach him, trying somehow to be able to find out how he could reach him for Christ. His oldest son couldn't get there in time. And in his mid-50s, at a time when he should have been able to be looking forward and enjoying grandkids, enjoying time with a precious wife that is dear and loving and kind, instead, he's dead. I know you're not going to hear that in public school, but I want you to know that God's moral, ethical law, you can make up anything you want to, but the wages of sin is death. Is that a mean thing for me to tell you? It's not a politically correct thing to tell you, but I want you to know from the depths of my heart, it's the truth. Some of you that are messing around in heterosexuality right now hearing my voice, Young people, I want to tell you the truth. If you're sleeping with someone that you haven't married and everybody that you go to school with does it, I pray with all my heart that some of you will say, I don't care whether everybody in the world does it. Jesus says no. Because I want to tell you from the depths of my heart, Mary and I work with people all the time that already lived the progressive lifestyle of high school where everybody did it. People all the time that already went away to college and everybody did it. And now in their midlife, their lives are totally coming unglued. You see, when Jesus came into your life, he came into your life not to end morality, not to end ethics. Jesus came when he said that he's the end of the law. He didn't mean that there's no longer any Ten Commandments. But we in evangelicals have decided that the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore. It doesn't make a bloody difference. You can believe in Jesus and live like the devil. It doesn't make any difference. Oh, yes, it does. You'll die. Because the wages of sin is death. And oh, I pray with all my heart that you're going to get really serious about it. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I believe in a God who enters every single moment, every single second into the natural world graciously, justly, Holy. I believe he's definitely involved in the natural world that we live in today. He's involved in my life. And what happened in the tribulation period is that he begins to use all of the physical forces at his beck and command to try to drive even unbelieving wicked people because he's so kind, he's so great. He says, I'll only hit a third of you at a time because I want the rest to respond to me. Is God mean for doing that? No. He's infinitely gracious and infinitely loving. But don't mistake his incredible grace for a denial of his justice. Because our Heavenly Daddy is kind and gracious. 
but he's also holy and just. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I would pray that you would help us from the Revelation chapter 8 to learn about the power of prayer, that all of heaven gets silent, that you respond to our prayers, that, that the forces of heaven move in planet Earth be in response to your people praying. And I also pray, Lord, that we'll learn from the lesson of the four trumpet judgments that we've looked at today, that we'll realize that you're plenty strong enough to defend us, that you're plenty strong enough to bring about justice on the earth. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, I just finally want to pray that you will help us as we go out into the world today to not be mean and prideful and vindictive. Lord, so many of the people that are standing for conservative ethic are doing it from a platform of pride, a platform of meanness, a platform that never goes on to tell people of the incredible grace of the cross of Calvary and what Jesus did there and the incredible power of the resurrection to give a new life. And I just pray with all my heart that you would help the message of Revelation 8, a message of judgment that sometimes bad things really happen because people are bad and because your justice does begin to discipline them and punish them very severely. But in this chapter, we've also learned that even in the midst of your judgment, that you give windows of grace, opportunities for turning around And I would pray, Lord, that you might even turn around someone that's hearing the message today. Lord, I pray that they'll realize that you don't take delight in the death of of a homosexual victim of AIDS. You cry over that. You weep over that. That you wanted them to really come to you and let their lives become brand new. Let their lives change. I pray that we'll also realize that you don't put homosexuality in some special chamber some special area of wickedness, that it's not really any different in kind from heterosexual immorality or drug abuse or drunkenness or being totally controlled by jealousy and envy and hate. I just ask you, Lord, that these trumpet judgments would be a reminder to me and a reminder, my brothers and sisters, of how deadly it is to rebel against your moral laws and how powerful you are in executing your justice, but also how kind you are to those that will turn around and accept the blood of Jesus to make them clean. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.